Wonderful to be with you guys uh, this morning and just want to honour Jesse for, uh, first of all, meeting with me at some point last year and then uh, inviting me in to share, so I appreciate it. Uh, My name is Jerem. I'm here with my wife, Gabrielle. We attend the Street Church down in Mount Victoria. Uh, And my role now is uh, to travel the country uh, far and wide, speaking at any and every... Is that me? Speaking at any and every school, church, business, community I can about the message of child sex trafficking. And as Jesse mentioned, it is, uh, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about. And, and I have this uh, dilemma that I need to present you with, on one hand, the horror of the situation, the, the heartache and the pain of what's happening to kids around the world. But if I just leave you there, I'm going to be like a surgeon that cuts you open and lets you bleed. And so I also need to balance it with some hope. And I need to be able to give you the stories that uh, are changing lives and these girls that were once captive and now free and thriving and happy. So I'm going to cut you open and then I'm going to sew you up. And if you don't feel sewn up at the end, please come see me or Jesse and we'll, uh, we'll try and patch up the rest of the wound. Um, but as I was standing down here during worship, um, the Lord gave me a picture that, I, that I've never had before, and that's if my role, we talk about uh, being an advocate and, um, and speaking up for kids who, who can't speak for themselves, and, and I saw myself standing here and behind me, uh, millions of children, because that's the, st- the statistic I'm about to share with you, millions of children around the world who are being sold for sex, and it's like I was standing here and there's millions of kids behind me with with tape over their mouths, and they can't speak. And I was standing here, and I wasn't speaking, saying, I know their story, but I'm not going to say it, and had this sense of people rising up saying, how dare you not share their story? They can't talk. Why are you staying silent? And so that's my role, is I have millions of little voices behind me, um, and I'm here just to share their story, um, bring the message to the table. Uh, And so I'm going to start telling you about them, and I'm going to give you some stats, I'm going to give you some awesome stories, but first I need to transport you from a beautiful day in Upper Hutt to Delhi, India, and I'm going to share with you Sanvi's story, which gives you a little bit of an insight into the world that we work in, um, and hopefully help take you on this journey. In India, the sex trade is a multi-billion dollar industry, fueled by the exploitation of up to five million prostitutes. And here, in GB Road, Delhi's largest red light district, almost 7,000 women and children are held in squalid conditions, purely for the gratification of the countless men who flock here day and night. The children trafficked or born into these desperate buildings are hidden from the world. And it's their stories of the true cost of sexual exploitation that are rarely ever heard. Tragedies like Sanvi's, orphaned at 12, abducted and sold into a brothel in GB Road. Jab 
ज़बरदस्ती दारू पिलाया उन्होंने उस दिन रात को दारू पिला के फिर मुझे जैसे कस्टमर आते तो मेरे पास भेजने के लिए तैयार हो गए थे ऐसे करें खराब करें मेरे साथ ब्रोकननेस बोथ फिजिकली एंड मेंटली ऑफ गर्ल्स ट्रैप्ड इन इंडिया सेक्स ट्रेड इज डिफिकल्ट टू कॉम्प्रिहेंड तो वहां की मोल देखे मैं डर गई थी दीदी एक तो पहली बात तो वहां सोने के लिए मिलता नहीं है मतलब दिन रात वहां मतलब काम कर रहे तो मुझे सिर्फ यही लगता था मैं मर जाऊं अब तो मेरे जिंदगी अब बचा ही नहीं है सिर्फ मर जाऊं बस मेरे मन में यही थी जब इन लोग तो घर नहीं भेज रहे मुझे बहुत कोशिश भी करा है पर नाकामयाब हो गया मैं कभी नशे काट लिया था कभी फिर आतवात काटने लगी थी अपने आप को एकदम पागल की जैसे व्यवहार करने लगी हुई थी reveal the barbaric treatment of girls in captivity here kept in squalid cells hidden corners even locked behind bars ban kamre mein bahut maine bilkul bahar nikalne ke liye bilkul rasta hi nahi tha sare raste wahan band hai 15 14 16 12 ladkiyan bhi hai unke sath drink karwana पता नहीं क्या क्या नींद की गोली भी देते हैं अगर कोई कोई कस्टमर के पास नहीं जाना चाहते जिंदगी में कभी मैंने सोचा नहीं था मैं निकलो वहाँ से मैं जिंदगी जी इतनी बुरी हालत से मेरे मेरे साथ करा उन्होंने वो बहुत पिटेंगे या तो जान से वहीं पर मर जाएंगे वो पता नहीं चलेगा किसी को भी जैसे बहुत मारेंगे पीटेंगे खाना नहीं देंगे ऐसे करके फिर उसको कुछ ना कुछ देके ऐसे कुछ दे देंगे जो वो मरी जाएगी पता भी नहीं चलेगा कब मर गई और कब फेंक दिया उन्होंने पता नहीं कहाँ छुपाते थे या कहाँ फेंक देते वो मुझे मालूम नहीं है I never thought I'd end up uh doing this uh for a job. I never in thought I would end up choosing to go into bars and brothels in Bangkok and Laos and in Delhi uh looking for children who were having to endure this. I didn't know that this world existed and maybe you're here this morning and this is the first time this has been brought to you. I know some of you here know a lot about this, but I was in the former camp. Uh I had I uh, gone through high school university with the dream of one day being a journalist. I thought one day if I could make it uh to the 6:00 news and uh be on live television and that would just be me done life complete. I'll do that every day uh until I die. And so I went through university, did a journalism degree, uh got a job at TV3 working as an online editor and then over the years uh moved my way up and uh come the start of 2014 I was there I was on the 6:00 news 
standing on top of Mount Victoria in 100k wins, talking with Mike McRoberts, with John Key one day and the All Blacks the next day, and I was having a great time, but I didn't have that sense of satisfaction and contentment that I thought would come with the role, and and it was over uh, a few months, well actually over a few years leading up to that point that I'd started hearing about this. I had a friend I'd gone to high school with, and he had clearly received a call from the Lord to go and live in Thailand and rescue children from the sex trade, and I was getting his monthly uh, missions updates and just the stories he was sharing uh, the way he was seeing God moving, I was just, I was like, man, I have to come see what you do. And so I took some time out at the start of 2014, three weeks over in Thailand, and I got to see uh, the red light areas of Bangkok and the heartache, the, the, the desperation the children are trapped in. And then I got to see uh, the beautiful aftercare homes and girls laughing and playing and being free. And then I came back to Wellington and just thought, God, I, I, I want to help. Uh, I don't know where, how, why, but uh, over, ser- over a series of weeks and months, he made it, I think, pretty clear to me that the door was wide open if I wanted to step through it. Um, and my lovely then girlfriend, girlfriend now wife, Gabrielle, she uh, gave me a year uh, pass uh, to go. She said, you can go. I want you to go. I want you to have this experience, but um, please come back and marry me. And so I said, that's fine. Um, <laughs> And so I went, and my role was to be uh, the media director for the organization. My job was to share stories, uh, interview girls, get their story, turn it into something that we can share here, Australia, America, to let people know what was happening. And then halfway through the year, all that changed, and I got pulled onto the rescue team. And so my time was split between media and rescue. And so I was going into bars, brothels, karaoke joints, massage parlors, uh, posing as a customer, looking for children uh, to help bring them to freedom. I want to give you some quick stats about the trade. Uh, some of that writing is going to be a little bit small. Um, $99 billion. That is what the sex trade is worth, estimated to be worth around the world. That top right number, 99% of all sex traffic victims are female. And that tells you another pretty... Uh, significant statistic, the main uh, users, the main uh, perpetuators of this trade are men. The middle one, seven out of every ten victims of sex trafficking are in Asia and the Pacific, and that's where our our organisation mainly works, India, Thailand, Cambodia, the Philippines, Laos, and the Dominican Republic. And the bottom number, at least one million children are victims of sexual exploitation. One million, and that is an estimate, and we would say on the conservative side. But how does all this start? How do we find a million children in the sex trade in the first place? And the most general and common answer to that is purely poverty. Uh, This is a photo taken from uh, the edge of a slum in Delhi that we visited last year, and the slum had 100,000 people in it. And there were poor people living in the slum, and then on the edges of the slum were the poor of the poor. And this, the, the jobs of, of these kids were to pick through trash every day to find something to eat or something to sell, uh, something to use to keep themselves warm. Um, there's an area um, in this particular slum where, because people don't have toilets in their own home, there's a, a communal area where people go to, um, to relieve themselves. 
and there are men that wait in those areas for children to go to the toilet, and that's where kids are being taken and used and abused. Um, and kids from that place are trafficked, they are kidnapped, walking along the road, they can be taken, sold, um, and gone without a trace. In other areas, in northern Thailand, in rural Cambodia, and rural Laos, someone will come to a village and say, hey, I'm from the big city, uh, I'm a restaurant owner, or I'm a hotel owner, uh, I just, I'm just looking for some girls who can cook and clean, sweep the floor, uh, make the place nice and tidy. It's pretty simple work. It's really easy. Um, I'll give them this much money a week. They'll send that home to you. I can see you're desperately poor. What do you say? Can I take your daughter? And the parents who are struggling to put food on the table, who are uneducated and have no idea that this man is a wolf in sheep's clothing, say, yeah, here's, here's my daughter. You know, please look after her and just make sure that she's sending that money back so that we can live. And so they willingly hand over their children and then these traffickers take them down uh, to six tourist hotspots and their lives are forever changed. In other situations, parents outright sell their children. Uh, we've had stories, every girl that comes into our care, we ask them, what's your story? We, we want to know how they ended up in this situation. And some girls have said, you know, mum... Mum and dad sold me so uh, they could get a new fridge. Mum and dad sold me so my brother could go to school and get an education. Because on one hand, while we're battling poverty and we're battling, battling spiritual forces, we're, we're bat battling cultural psyches. And in a lot of these countries, girls just aren't valued at all. That families will sacrifice the girl for the good of the boy. When I'm sharing at schools here, I was sharing at St. Pat's a few months ago, and I said, boys, the chances are if we were in Southeast Asia right now, in a poor part of Southeast Asia, the only reason you'd be getting an education is because your sister's body is paying for it. That, that's what's happening uh, in some of these places, and it's so hard for us to comprehend and understand. But the girls go from living with their families, sometimes a loving family, Sometimes it's a really abusive family, but they end up in the sex trade um, being paraded about uh, for men to see and use as they see fit. I want to share the, the three main parts of, of what we do, of uh, the situation, how we combat it, and uh, the hope of what's coming. And the very first part of what we do is rescue. It's in our name. It's what we're all about. Um, and there's, there's a couple of different ways that we do it, and the, the main way is uh, through posing as a customer. And so my role and uh, the rescue agent's role was to go around bars and brothels and massage parlours in rural, in rural Thailand and rural Cambodia and the six tourist hotspots, anywhere and everywhere, because this sort of child abuse isn't just happening in the red light areas. That's the most common place for a Westerner to go to abuse a child. But a lot of the abuse and a lot of the rape is happening in rural communities and rural brothels uh, where local men are abusing their kids. But we would go, we would walk into a bar, we'd walk into a brothel, much like what you'd see here, and there would just be pounding bass and neon lights and there's laughter and there's girls on stage dancing and the pimps come up to you and they start giving you alcohol and just trying to create this, this excitement, this ambience, this um, a, a really hyped up atmosphere. And so we'd take a seat and we would uh, look at what was on offer on the stage. In some places, 
there'd be one or two poles uh, up on a stage, and in some of the other places I've been in, there was 60, and as many as 60 to 100 uh, women and children on stage, uh, each uh, usually dressed in just a bikini or in their underwear, and they don't have a name, they're just given a number. Sometimes the number's written on them in vivid. Sometimes it's just a little badge that's attached to their underwear. Um, But they're stripped of their humanity, and they're stripped of their dignity, and they don't have a name, they have a number. And so we would sit there, and if we were given information from one of our informants that said, hey, if you go to uh, Kispar, number 123, uh, we know she's 16 years old. Or sometimes we would just go from bar to bar and just try and look for the youngest people we could. And so we'd go in and we'd identify uh, who we believe is a child. And so I'd say to them, hey, uh, you know, I really, you know, number 23 is beautiful. I'd, I'd just really like to spend some time with her. Could you please have her come sit with me? Pimp thinks I'm there uh, as a customer. And so I'm trying to play that part of, of, of a bad person. Um, and so this girl would come and sit down. And a lot of the times... Um, they'd just sit there and they'd be shaking uh, with fear. Uh, I've had girls come and sit and they, they'd pull their hair down to try and cover their... Excuse me. They'd pull their hair down to try and cover themselves because they just... I just sense the shame just radiating from them because they, they don't want to be there. 14, 15, 16-year-old girls at 11 o'clock midnight having to sit with a complete stranger while he can do whatever he wants to her. And as that girl comes and sits with me because I've ordered her, she's pretty much my property um, for as long as I want. And I've just seen men do terrible things to children and women in those places. And so the girl comes and sits with us, and she's expecting us to behave like every other man that she's had sit with her before. But we would just take her hand and say, hey, look, um, you know, I'm just just traveling through uh, I'm a businessman here, on to some business. I'm just, I'm lonely, and I just need some company. I, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to be here for any of that tonight. And so immediately their guard comes down. And then we just start to ask them questions. You know, well, what, I see you have a number, but, but what's your name? What's your favorite thing to eat? Have you, have you seen any movies recently? Are you allowed to get out of here? Like, if you get out of here, what would you want to do one day? And we just start to engage in conversation we knew enough of the local language in those spots. The girls knew enough English from their numerous Australians and Americans and British people that had come through. And we just start to engage. And I'd pull out my phone and I'd show her photos of Wellington on a good day. I had one photo. Um, but we would, and she'd be like, man, this is a beautiful place. Like, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And we just stay with them and we show them that we are warm and we're kind. And in the meantime, we're trying to engage with the, uh, the bar owner, trying to say, you know, oh, yeah, she's beautiful. I can't wait to take her back to my hotel room. But then with her, we're, we're, we are who we are. It's a real Jekyll and Hyde sort of act. And it's exhausting because on the outside, we have to pretend to be someone disgusting. But when we're with this girl, we want the heart of Christ to come through. We want her to sense there's something different about us. And so we build this relationship and we stay with them for as long as we can that night because we know as soon as we leave, she's going to be given to the next dude. And so we stay. And then we say, hey, look, um, I had a really great time with you tonight. Uh, Is it okay if I come back and and, and see you again tomorrow night or maybe the night after? And then we give them a, a, sneak them a bit of a tip, a hundred baht, maybe four or five dollars. And that's just our way of saying, you know, I I see you. You know, um, I'm not going to forget you. And then we'd leave. 
And then we'd come back the next night and we'd do this numerous times and so many times we'd go back into the same place and that child would leave whoever she's sitting with or she'd get down from the stage and come running over to us because she sees a safe man and she sees a kind man and she sees a man that didn't abuse her the night before and she sees a man that gave her a bit of money the night before. And so all these things work in our favor and we do the whole thing again and we just start to build a friendship. And if the girl is able to leave, if she has a little bit of freedom, then we can organize a time to meet up for lunch in order to say, hey, um, we'd, we'd message her and say, I'm, I'm going to be at this place for lunch tomorrow. Do you want to come meet me? If she's able to, then we'll meet her and then we'll make the offer. We'll break our, our cover and say, hey, look, maybe you figured it out by now, but I'm not, actually, I'm not actually here to take anything from you. I'm here to give you something. I work for this organization. I can get you out of here right now. I can take you to a safe place. You never have to be used like this again. What do you say? And nine times out of ten, the girl will say, yeah, take me now. In other situations, we can't take the girl out. We have to raid the place with police. And so while we're doing this whole ruse of of gaining trust and and building a relationship, we're filming with our phones, with undercover equipment. We're giving this to police. We're saying, hey, this girl is being sold for sex. The police will raid the place. They'll intercept the girl. They'll take her to a safe house the bad people get arrested. Those are the two main ways that we rescue. And there's, there's a, a really memorable one for me. It was the last one I ever did before I left Thailand. And we'd identified a 15 and a 16-year-old girl in, in probably one of the most disgusting brothels that I'd ever been in. And we'd gone in, we'd organized this raid with police, and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd seen the girl on stage, and I'd ordered her to come sit with me, uh, the, I remember the bar owner actually pulled out a laser light and shone it in her eyes to get her attention and, and then she walked over to sit with me. And I remember her, she was just sitting there so empty, so empty. There, there's other women and girls who are dancing and they're dancing like they really, really enjoy it. But you can just see from time to time a teenage girl who is, who is holding the pole and just swaying from side to side and you look in her eyes and, and there's just nothing there. There's just nothing there. And this was one of those girls and she came and sat with me and so we'd organise with the police, okay, we'll get the girls, we'll take them down to a hotel room, then you can raid uh, the bra- bar and then you can come and get the girl. And so we had this all organised uh, but there was rain on the forecast and so we're negotiating with the bar owner and we said, hey, you know, we've got these two girls, me and my partner, and they were like, oh, don't know if you can take him away. It's going to rain tonight. We were like, why, why does that matter? It's going to rain tonight. But for some reason that night, rain was a big deal. And, and the police were even saying, oh, we don't know if we can do the raid tonight because it's going to rain. And we we're just so confused. Like, why would that matter? There's a couple of kids who need freedom and you're worried about rain? And so we're, we're going back and forth with the bar owner, negotiating price, saying, hey, like, we, just, we really want to take these girls tonight, please. Oh, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. Look, but the longer you talk about rain, the more it's likely to rain, so let us take them. So we managed to get the girls outside, we managed to get them down, walked them probably about a kilometre away from the brothel down to this dingy old hotel that we'd hired, and we got the girls inside, the police uh, came into the room, they explained the situation to the girls, told them they were free, another police team raided the bar, arrested the two perpetrators, and as me and my friend were sitting outside the hotel room having been pretend arrested, and the moment the girls came out in police care, the heavens just opened, and it just bucketed down. As soon as the girls were safe, 
the heavens opened. And if it had rained any time before that, it would have all been called off. And we just sat there and looked at each other and we just started laughing. We were just like, God, your timing is just poetic. It's just beautiful. It doesn't always work out for us, though. Um, I remember a time when I was in Laos and, and I was uh, just there visiting our project and uh, we'd gone out uh, into uh, what was called the wholesale area and this was just a big gravel car park with bamboo shacks all around the corner and I was there with a local rescue agent and we were just walking around he said just take your time uh, find the youngest one that you can and uh, then we'll see if we can take her, take her out for the night this was an area where if you had the local knowledge, you could go and purchase a child before they get sent out for the night to all the bars and brothels. And so we found a 16 and a 17-year-old girl, and we took them out to sing karaoke because they love singing karaoke, but they're just not very good at it. So it was a very painful hour and a half. Although there was one English song, and it was Justin Bieber's Baby, so I sang that multiple times. Um, and we'd had, we'd had a bit of fun, and uh, this girl's name was B. and I remember uh, singing songs, and she'd take my glasses off my face and put them on, and we were having a really good time. But I was leaving the next day, and um, I said to the, the rescue agent I was with, I said, bro, um, I need to make an offer. Like, it, it's not policy to offer on the first night because sometimes we get denied, but I said, look, I just need to make the offer. And so he said, all right, you, you talk and I'll translate. And um, I grabbed her hands and I looked at her and I said, seriousness on my face, I said, B, are you happy? And she just looked at me quite confused. Uh, she'd never been asked that question before. I said, is this what you want to do because I can get you out of here? And I, and I made the offer. And I was so full of anticipation and hope that she was going to say yes. And then she turned from me. And she gave the rescue agent somewhat of a playful slap in the face. And I was just like, I said, and she said something. I said, what, what did she say? What was that about? And he said, um, she doesn't believe you and she wants us to take her back to her pimp now. And I just, I just remembered just saying, dude, you have to do whatever you can. You have to convince her. You have to let her know that I'm for real. And so we tried again and then she was just resolute. Um, just a hardness came across her and it was everything within me not to just break down in that brothel and start crying and I had to put her on the back of my motorbike and take her back to her pimp and he got off the bike and she just started slinking off into the darkness and I called her back um, and just gave her a a big brother hug. Um, I don't have kids yet and I just felt like, I just felt the father's heart for this girl thinking, man, if this was my daughter I wouldn't let her go. And I had to say, I said to her, I hope, I hope I can see you again. And she walked off and she walked back to her pimp and we, and we couldn't get her. And I don't know where she is now because our rescue agents lost contact with her after that. I went back to my room that night and just bawled my eyes out because I really felt like we'd let this kid down. And, and the country manager said, Jerem, you know, it's, it's actually understandable that, uh, that she said no. And I said, why? He said, well... She's probably one of those girls who someone came to her village and offered her a better life. She's probably one of those girls who someone said, hey, I can get you, I can get you out of this poor situation and I can give you freedom and you'll be happy. And she believed him. And so when I come in and on my first time meeting her make that offer, she says, no, 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 I've been in that situation before. And so that's why we, we make sure that we earn that girl's trust first. Um, it's, it's too painful making an offer and a girl saying no. 
All right, that's me cutting you open. Now I'm going to stitch you up, okay? The restoration is, is where all the good stuff happens. This is, if rescue is the starter's gun, if rescue is the beginning of transformation, the beginning of our work, then the restoration and the reintegration of these kids is the marathon. This is where the hard work, the meaningful work, the life-changing work is done. When the girls are taken out of the brothel, they have a couple of options. One is if they are really high trauma, uh, or if their parents have sold them and their family's not safe, they'll come into our care straight away. If they're in a situation where their parents have been tricked or duped or they've been kidnapped, uh, then the child will uh, look after them for a little bit and then take them home, and we will support them from afar so they can heal uh, in their family community, will help enrol them in school and pay for their fees, uh, that sort of thing. But the main thing is they need to be restored. They've been through hell on earth. They've endured things that no person, no, let alone a child, should ever have to do. Seeing multiple men a night, day after day, year after year. And so we give them time to heal. When they first come into our care, the girls, most of them, will sleep for one or two days straight. And they'll say to us, that's the first time I can remember in a long time that I've been able to go to bed and just sleep and not work. And we give them a chance to, to go and enjoy uh, good food and play games. Other rescued girls come out and meet them and say, hey, you are so welcome here. I was in your situation too, but now, trust me, you'll be free. You'll be happy. This is a great place. They get three meals a day. Uh, they get to go to class. They get to learn uh, English, which automatically increases their chances of getting a good job. Uh, they get to learn to read and write in their own language because most of them haven't been to school beyond the age of 10 or 11. Um, we give them Christian counselling, and, and this is the main part, uh, the most important part of what we do. This is a photo I took in Laos a few years ago. The girls in that room are learning about the armour of God. And this is a Buddhist, animist, communist country where Christians are persecuted, so we lay pretty low in Lao. But you would have heard a pin drop in that room as these girls are hearing about the love of a father and learning about the armor of God, and a whole world has just opened up to them. And the amazing thing is that we get to tell these kids um, who, who see us, who see this flesh and bone as their savior, we get to say, you know, I'm just, I'm just the messenger. The reason we were in that bar looking for you, the reason we came into that brothel looking for you is because there is a God in heaven who loves you. He is your heavenly father. And because we know what his heart is, we want to come and bring freedom to many girls like you. And we get to tell these girls truth that they've never been told before. Because for their whole lives, they've been told you are stupid, you are dumb, you are worthless. The only thing actually you're good for is your body. So this is your lot. Deal with it. Suck it up. That's going to be your life. Stop complaining. And so the girls come into our care with such a broken broken view of themselves, such a low view of themselves. One of these girls, in fact, asked one of the workers when I arrived at the home, why is that white man here? And he got to explain, well, you know, because he, he cares for you and he wants to help you. And she said, why does he care about me? I don't even care about myself. This is the sort of low view these girls are coming into our care with. But then we get to say, excuse me, I'm a little bit sick today. We get to say, there is a God in heaven who actually loves you and did you know that you are made in his image and did you know that in Psalm 139 it says while you were still growing 
in your mother's belly that God was there. He saw you. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. And he has marked out a wonderful journey for your life. You have a great story to tell. What's happened to you is in the past. What you've got ahead is something amazing. You are beautiful. You are smart. You are wonderful. You have good things ahead for you. And once these girls start to get it, they start to flourish. They start to come alive. They start to dream again. And it's just the most beautiful thing to see. We've had girls go on from our care to go to study Bible college in Chiang Mai, to go and study Bible college in Burma, who want to be pastors, who want to be worship leaders. These kids are getting their lives transformed. This is one of my favorite photos because for us, we just see two kids on a bike. It's something we'd see just rolling down Upper Hartner in Wellington City. It's no big deal. But for these two girls who would have been through a horrendous situation, they're riding a bike on their own time. No one's telling them what to do. They're free, and they get to enjoy a simple pleasure like that. This means everything to some of these kids. And the reintegration is, is the last piece of the puzzle. We, we rescue them. We restore them, mind, body, soul, give them the gospel. And our greatest intention, our greatest desire is that each of these kids will come to know the Lord as their Savior. That's the true healing. But we can't just leave them there. We need to give them something that they can move on to, move into, to give them uh, hope of actually creating generational change. And so we have hair and beauty uh, classes for, the, for these girls, which most of them want to do. Uh, we have barista training. We've got a cafe in, in Cambodia and a cafe in Thailand. And some of these kids are just ridiculous when it comes to latte art. I was in Thailand three weeks ago, and uh, that's one of the pieces that one of the girls gave me. It was just amazing. Uh, we have jewelry making programs uh, for the girls, just part of their downtime. The, the healing and the emotional uh, part of it is taxing. So for some of them, they get downtime, they make jewelry. For some of them, that's their full-time job. They want to be jewelry makers. So we set them up, they make jewelry, we import it here to New Zealand and sell it on their behalf. So if that's something you're interested in looking at, uh, chat with me afterwards. So we have these things these ways of equipping them, their hands so they can go and earn a meaningful income. Some of them say, hey, that, that barista, jewellery, hair, that's great, but I actually want to be a doctor or a flight attendant or an accountant. We'd say, that's wonderful. Here's, here's the funding. Here is a microloan. Here is a way that we can make this happen. And they get to go on from there. One of my favourite stories is a girl called Anong. And she had been rescued from a bar when she was 17, came into our care, learnt hair and beauty, really excelled in it, just had natural talent to be a hairdresser. And she graduated the program, she worked in the salon for a little while, and then she opened up, three years ago, she opened up her own hair salon in northern Thailand. She's employing some other staff, and she's made enough money to build a family, a new house. A girl who was just in the worst situation, came through our care, is now an employer, and being able to take care of her family. And it's stories like these that that just filled me with so much hope because unless someone went looking for her, she'd be in the same situation and now there's generational change because of it. And this is why we do it. And this is why I went because this is God's heart. This is God's heart. Our God is a God of justice. He's looking out for the poor. He's looking out for the oppressed. He's looking out for the vulnerable. And for so long, I was so frustrated with myself because I didn't, I didn't have a, a visceral, emotional reaction to the stuff that I heard. 
remember people coming in, people like what I'm doing now, and I was sitting where you are, they'd come into church, they'd come into youth group, and they'd share these gnarly stories, and I would sit there, and, and I'd mentally assent to what they were saying. I would mentally agree and go, yes, that is wrong, but there was nothing happening in here, and I'd get so frustrated and so worked up with myself because I thought, where is this, where's the compulsion to go? God, like, I, I, I agree that this is wrong, but where's the fire? Where's the, where's the passion that is stirring me to go to that? And I'll never forget when uh, a guy who had been doing some missions work in Uganda came to the street, and he told the exact same story. And he said, I was sitting where you're sitting, and I had no reaction. I had mental assent. And he said, I wanted to do something. I wanted my heart to break for the vulnerable and break for the poor. And then he said, God told him, if you want to have a heart for these people, go to where they are. Go and meet them. Go and experience them. Go and hang out with them. And that was a word for me because I couldn't just wait for a feeling to come. I couldn't just wait and act on a feeling. I know this is God's heart. This is what he says in his word. If you're wondering what God's will is for your life, open up the Bible and read about his heart for the poor, the oppressed, the least of these. That is his will for us in Christ Jesus, to go and be his hands and feet. And so I read that. I heard that guy share his story, and I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. I have these skills. I can help. I want to help. I'm not going to wait for a warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm going to go because I can do something. I can do something. And for you guys sitting here this morning, I don't know your story, but if you're a follower of Jesus here, this is the heart of your God. This is his heart, and it's what he wants us to go and do and be his hands and feet. And that's here in Upper Hutt, and that's in Wellington City, and that's all over New Zealand, and that's all over the world too. We have the means of helping. We have the means of helping. I don't care if you're 16 or you're 60 here today. There is something you can do. You can go and talk to someone about this. You can start a prayer group. You can give. You can, you can volunteer. There's always something we can do. There's always something we can do. Just a couple of ways. Host a jewelry party I mentioned before. If that's something you guys want to, to get involved in, then we can hook you up with some jewelry. If you want to go and see what we do, uh, we have a couple of team trips throughout a year, a two-week trip, one week in Cambodia, one week in Thailand, to spend some time with the girls and see the local area, get to meet our rescue guys. That's a bit of an experience. You can give uh, support. The work only happens if there's resources, if there's people in finance to do it. Uh, But I would encourage you, you have an opportunity today to do something or to do nothing. And whatever it is, I encourage you as you leave here today, ask God, God, what's my response? What's my response to this? What's my response to understanding more about God's heart for Upper Hutt, for Wellington, to reach the least of these and to do it all for his glory? So as Jesse comes up, I've got one last video to show you that will just sort of tie this up. This is our founder, Tony Kerwin, uh, and he uh, shares one of his most memorable rescues uh, about a girl who was wearing little red shoes I'll be out the back afterwards. Thank you so much for your time today. He was really desperate. He said he had a 13-year-old girl and there was um, heaps of guys that were trying to take this kid off him and he was scared he was going to get violent. So 
one of the boys and I jumped on their bikes and we headed straight over there and it was um, quite a small grubby little bar, about four or five tables, all of them were filled with guys drinking beer and uh, basically staring at the young girls that were handing out the drinks and I went over and sat down at the table with the boys and as I did I noticed in the back corner there looked like a um, stairwell going down underneath the floor so I snuck over there and went down those stairs to see what was down there and as I got down there I could see they'd dug out underneath the brothel and built roughly about seven small rooms and it was just like a thick smell of stale sweat it was really quite disgusting and I walked around the corner and um, as soon as I got around there I could see straight away these pair of small red shoes that um, some kid had obviously kicked off as she was taken into the room and um, as I stood there feeling really helpless I could um, hear what was going on in that room and um, I was rem- remember standing there realising what that 13 year old kid that we had up at the table upstairs what she would have to do every single night and I knew if we didn't do something tonight she would end up down here at some point doing what that girl was doing right then so I went back upstairs and sat down next to that kid and and as I did that the agent leant over to me and he said "Um, this girl's been here for about a week and every night um, usually four or five times she gets taken downstairs and um, she's forced to have sex with customers and basically raped by these violent men and um, I looked over at this kid and she was looking at me and her eyes just she was petrified and um, it was like she was begging me to um, do something to get her out of that place so I um, called the mama-san, the brothel owner, over and I um, said I wanted to take this kid back to my hotel room and we negotiated a price to do that. In the brothel owner's mind, I was taking her away to have sex, but what was really happening is we were taking her away to her freedom. And we just stood up and this kid took my hand and we walked out that brothel. She jumped on the back of my bike and we took off to one of our rescue homes and as we arrived I looked back and I just saw this gorgeous smile on this kid's face as she realised that what we were saying was true and um, she went to bed and I I think she slept for one or two days which is quite normal and um, something these kids often say is you know that's the first time I can remember in a long time that I've been able to go to bed and just sleep and um, you know, my dream is that all children will be able to go to bed and sleep and not work. I have a, a photo on my mobile phone of those little red shoes as a constant reminder that there's still one more out there. One more kid worth rescuing, never to stop. Every kid is worth the risk, worth the love, worth the cost. We just want to thank you, Jerem, for coming and sharing your heart and your story. Can we just pray as we close? Father, we 
Lord, you can't not be moved by, by watching some of these things and hearing these stories. But Father, I just pray first and foremost that you would empower each of us to do our little part where we are. Father, if that is to, to assist Jerem, Jesus, let that be it. If it's to continue the work with Hagar, Father God, let that be it. Father, if it's, if it's to, to begin to pray as an intercessor for this, Jesus, let that be released. But Lord, I just pray that there wouldn't be needs like this in our world and we would stay silent. Lord, I pray that you would make us aware of those things here in Upper Hut, Father, that need our time, our prayer, our energy, our resources. But Father, may we not be an impotent church, but we're filled with the very spirit and power of God. And Father, we speak release in this place in the mighty name of Jesus, that we would take on your heart for those captive, Father, for those destitute. Jesus, would you release your people not to come together and gather, but to be sent, Jesus, into each little sphere so we can do what you're calling us to do in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.